Is that just me? I could stand there all day and just listen to it. It is incredible. And I bet the kids love to be in, splashing in the water. And then when it's a low tide, you've got the rock pools and that's the best time if you time it right. And it's like, yes, you can go in all the rock pools. And then the tide comes in, you have to get back up onto the pier. It's amazing. And we can be so focused on how amazing that is that we don't actually see that it's the moon that is controlling those waves. How incredible is that? What? So I had Mark explain the scientific side to me and I just stood like this. Right, because that's not me. I can stand and go, wow, that's amazing, but I can't explain it to you, okay? But the moon controls the waves and it's something about, and I'll have a go, and you can all go, no, that's a load of rubbish, Laura. But basically, when the gravity of the moon pulls on either side of the Earth, it's almost like it's being squashed like that. So you have a high tide on either side of the Earth, and on the top and bottom, then you have a low tide. And then when the, when the moon, when the Earth turns and the moon moves a different position, it's like it's squashed, but the opposite way. So they have a high tide and a high tide and a low and a low. That's, in, that's about as good as you're going to get, right? And I just stood and went, that's amazing. But when I go down the beach, that's not what I think about. I'm so mesmerised by the waves that I don't think about how it's working. And then you can go even beyond that and you go, okay, so why is the moon? Well, God. It always goes back to God. But sometimes we can be so focused on the thing that's right in front of us that we don't actually see the glory and the amazing power of where it actually comes from. So I want you to keep that in mind today. And I'm just going to put up a little quote. I'm going to come back to it, okay? Don't know if anybody will know who this quote is from before it goes up, you might. <clears throat> but this quote is from a guy called William Carey. Okay? And it says this, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Now, there's a reason why that word for kids is in a box. And you're going to understand why. Because it's all about the story today in Acts chapter 8. So what's happened is Stephen had been stoned and we did that story and he died and the church was being persecuted. And so the Christians, lots of them had spread and they'd moved out and they'd gone to the surrounding towns and cities in Judea and Samaria, which actually is quite incredible because in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, it says, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. Just for you to realize that whatever God says comes true. Okay, so when the church is persecuted and people try to stamp out the gospel, the gospel spreads. Okay, we looked at the persecuted church a few weeks ago when Auntie Beth was talking about it, and it's incredible that in the places where people are being persecuted for the gospel, you see it spread because God's word can never, ever be quashed, can never, ever die. It is living, it is active, it is real. That's why the power is there of the things that people say. Okay, and so when Jesus said, my word will go to the far ends of the earth, it will to everybody and everybody will hear. So this was sort of like the beginning. So there was a guy called Philip. I'm going to put his name up on here just so everybody up the top can see as well. Somebody we're going to look at today. So Philip was one of the deacons. He was one of the disciples, one of the, one of the men of God who loved Jesus. He was a Christian and he ended up going to Samaria. And when he was there, he ended up preaching the gospel because that's what he was doing. And he performed amazing, absolutely amazing signs and wonders, miraculous things. Now, I can't tell you what they were because the Bible doesn't tell us what they are, okay? 
but he performed signs and wonders, and the people in Samaria were amazed by him. And when he preached the word, they were just, they couldn't believe what they were hearing. It was fantastic. And loads of people followed him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. They wanted to hear more about who Jesus was. And so people were baptized. <clears throat> they believed and they were baptized. Now, there was a man there in Samaria called Simon. Okay? Now, Simon was a magician of sorts. And for ages, he had amazed the people of Samaria with his signs and wonders and the amazing things that he could do. But when Philip came along, the game changed. Because what he realized was that the things that he was doing, and even though the people had given him the title of this, the great power of God, that's what they'd called him, even though he was doing these amazing things and he'd deceived people for so long with these amazing tricks and miraculous things he could do, when he saw what Philip was doing and the way he was preaching, it was far beyond anything he could do. Far beyond anything he could do. And people weren't interested any longer in what Simon was doing. They were amazed at what Philip was doing and what he was talking about and the things he was saying about God. So... This guy, Simon, almost became like a bit of a has-been. After all these people had been following him and watching him and were amazed at these wonders, there weren't any more. And Simon had been feeding off this. He loved that. Who doesn't like getting attention sometimes? I know there's some people who don't like it as much, but you like people sometimes to think that you've done something good. You like people to maybe think, oh, actually, they're good at doing that, and it gives you a bit of that confidence boost. Simon loved it. He loved the people followed him. He loved the people thought he was amazing. He loved the title that he had. And all of a sudden, that was taken away. Because he realized that actually what he had was not true power at all. Because the true power and the real power, and this is the word I'm going to stick over the top, the real power was God. The real power and where it came from was only from God, and it flowed through Philip. That's why he could do these amazing things. That's why he could perform these amazing signs and wonders. So, not long after Philip had been there, Peter and John came to Samaria. And when they came, they laid hands on the people who were believers, and they received the Holy Spirit, and more miraculous signs and wonders were done, which drew even more crowds to what Philip and Peter and John were doing. And it was just amazing. And Simon wanted in on this. Simon wanted in on this. So he decided, foolishly, that he would go to Peter and John, because magicians did this sometime, and he would go to Peter and John, and he would say, do you know what? I'll give you loads of money if you'll give me some of that power, if you let me in on what your secrets are. Now, when I read about this at the time, people who were like Simon, magicians of sorts, would have gone and they would have paid money to like share secrets. So you can understand a bit about why he did this. But the moment he did it, I think he instantly regretted going to Peter and John. And he went to them and he said, you know, I'll give you loads of silver. I'll make you rich. Just tell us what it is that, you know, he wanted this power. He wanted to be able to do the things that they could do. And I'm going to read to you, and it says this, that Peter turned to him, after he said, I'll give you money, turned to him, he said this, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God 
with money. And then Peter said to him, pray to God. Pray to God because your heart's not in the right place. Pray to God that this won't happen. And Simon said to Peter, he asked Peter that if he would pray for him. He asked him that he prayed, pray that them things that you've said about us won't come true. We don't actually hear, really, if he did change, if Simon changed his mind, if he changed his heart, if he did pray and repent. But I think this, this story is in the Bible for a couple of reasons. One of them is the fact that even though Simon had this amazing power to be able to do some sort of tricks and things like that, even he recognized true power when he saw it. He knew he had nothing. He knew he had absolutely nothing when Philip showed these amazing signs and wonders because he had God with him. He knew that whatever he was doing, he was quite happy to change sides because he wanted this. He saw true power. But the whole point is he was looking at the wrong thing. Do you know, I talked about the waves at the beginning. Be so focused on the waves that you don't see where the real power's from. Be so mesmerized by what you see that you're not thinking greater. A bit like Simon. And then when he saw Peter and John come and the power that they had, he was so fixated on what they could do that he hadn't realized at all that this, this power all of the time was coming from God. You can't buy it. It's not something you can obtain through money. And that's what Peter was saying to him. So there's a huge warning in there, like a big warning, flashing light. And that warning is that God's power is to be used for his glory and his glory alone. It's not for us to use to bring praise to ourselves. All of the gifts, all of the talents, all of the abilities we have are for us to use for God's glory, not for our own. And going back to that verse at the beginning with William Carey, that expect great things from God, expect him to do amazing signs and wonders. I think I don't do that often enough. And sometimes I'm shocked when amazing things happen. And it's ridiculous that you should be shocked. But I am. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. It's like, actually, no, expect. Be a bit more expectant, Laura. Expect these great things from God. But then when you do that, attempt great things for God. Not for yourself. It doesn't say for Laura. It doesn't say for Adrian. It doesn't say for Tom. It doesn't say for Kevin. It doesn't say anybody. It says for God. Expect great things from him, but do great things for him. We all have amazing gifts and talents and abilities and the power of the Holy Spirit is in us if we believe. But we have to use those gifts to give glory to God. Don't be so mesmerized by the other things that are going on that we forget where the real power comes from. And when we realize that, let's give the praise back to God in everything we do. Are in uh, Revelation 14? Um, and we're in verse from verse 6 to the end of the chapter this morning. So I'm going to read that. <clears throat> um, so John writes, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. 
He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Um, so, most of you, well, you're all aware that um, I grew up in East Anglia, and uh, when you live, uh, when you grow up in an agricultural area, one of the sort of great things is, is watching sort of the you know, things happening in the fields around the, the crops coming up in spring and, and the harvest coming, um, you know, at, at, at the end of the summer and so on. And uh, a, a few years ago, um, Alice and I were staying on a farm with some uh, some friends of ours own a farm in Suffolk and we were staying on their farm with them. And it, it's one of those sort of schoolboy dreams when Robert, the farmer, invited me to go and get the harvest on his combine harvester. It was one of those sort of, you know, you wouldn't understand that, okay? But, um, you know, it's one of those sort of, you know, it's like being taken down the pit, okay? It's one of those sort of, it's, it's, it's one of those, um, it's one of those things that's just tremendously great uh, when you come from East Anglia. And it's one of those things that, you know, you just really sort of can't wait to do. And it's, really, and it's just sort of, it's one of those things that, that happens, you know, that we all know that happens from the dawn of time. You know, man has, has, has sown seed and harvested. And it's something that, that always comes. Sometimes the harvest is bad, sometimes it's good. But the harvest always comes. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a great thing about life, isn't it? Um, one of the interesting things about life is that the, the moment that God created Adam and Eve, the harvest of mankind was always going to come. There was always going to be a harvest uh, of mankind. And that would be when, when things were ripe, when it was the right time for the harvest, and the harvest would come, and then the judgment would come with it. Um, and this is what this uh, chapter, or this part of the chapter is about, uh, really. We're going to focus on that this morning. We come back to this later on in Revelation, as I'm sure you realize. Um, but as I said last week, this chapter is a, a victory chapter for the church. It's a, ch- it's a, a chapter that's uh, supposed to build them up and encourage them after the, the, the war that we looked at in chapters 12 and 13. But it also serves as a warning to those, perhaps, who heard this and within the church who were not yet saved um, as well. So we're going to look at this um, this morning. We're going to think about the harvest um, that's coming. Uh, that's what the title is this morning, The Harvest is Coming. And we're going to, it's, it's an encouragement if you're part of Christ's church. It's a real encouragement for us. 
Uh, for those who are not part of Christ Church, if you're not part of Christ Church, if you're listening to this and not part of Christ Church, it's a reminder of how, however hard this is to say and think about it, uh, it's a reminder of how brutal uh, the end will be for those who are not saved. And that's a reminder to all of us to think about that, how brutal things will be for those who are not saved at the end of time. So I've got two points this morning, and the first point is the clear message of the eternal gospel. Um, this section from verse uh, 6 down to verse 13, people look at this in, in, in different ways as they have done a lot of revelations we've seen. Some people see this as a vision of uh, the final moment when uh, the angels come out and it's a last proclamation of the gospel given to the whole earth, a last chance to turn to, to, to Christ before he returns. Some people look at it like that. Other people see this as it being um, really a, a pronouncement of judgment. And so this is the point where the gospel has gone out, the gospel has gone out, it's been given out, and now the judgment is coming. And so it's a, it's a reminder that the judgment is coming to people, but it's also the fact that people will understand that the judgment is coming and therefore that they need to fear that God is going to bring uh, that judgment to them. Um, people look at this in different ways, as I said. F for me, it's not that important. I don't think it's a, the debate goes on like all of Revelation. I don't think the debate I need to have this morning because it's, it's what this passage, how it applies to us and applies to the world, I think, which is most important. There's a gospel message that has gone out. Um, the angel here has the eternal gospel. People, again, debate what that means. What does that actually mean? Um, is it the gospel that the church has preached for the whole of its history that, that Paul alludes to in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, where he says this, now, Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For I received what I, for, I, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance: that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures; that He was buried; that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So that's the gospel that the church has had uh, since the, the, the dawn of the church. Uh, but there's a, there's, a, there's another gospel, isn't there? If you like. Uh, people say, well, I don't understand. I didn't know there was another gospel. But of course, Paul alludes to, to that in Romans chapter 1, and some people debate whether this is what this is talking about um, in this section, uh, and that is Romans 1, 18 to 20, where it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So the gospel of Jesus Christ that we all know, the gospel about who God is that we all know as well. But the facts are clear. We can, we can know God because we can see God either in, in what he's created and, and who he is through that, or through we can have a relationship with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to come to Jesus Christ to have that personal relationship to, with God, as we're going to see. But is you know everyone is without excuse, as Paul says in Romans. The message is out there. It's received, and it's either accepted or it's rejected. And this is the important thing about the gospel, isn't it? 
um, that, that we give out, that we talk about. Um, there's only two camps that man can fall into. That's really important to always remember. You know, when uh, very early in his ministry, Jesus spoke a very simple parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus talked about two gates and two roads, that was it, not three roads, not four roads, not five gates, not seven gates, not however many gates. Uh, a little bit later on in the same chapter, he talks about uh, building your house on the sand or on the rock, two houses, two foundations, not five, not six. When he comes to his parables about the, the end of time, there's the sheep and the goats, there's left and there's right, there's not many different ways. There's only two ways, Jesus made that clear. You're either for God or you're against him. That's it. That's all there is, according to the Bible. There's no middle ground. Uh, and if you stand against him, whether you know it or not, or whether you realize it or not, you fall into the camp of the enemy of God. And we've thought about that over these weeks. The, you know, the, the, the world that is influenced and infiltrated by you know, the, the Antichrist, by the false prophet, by the dragon, Satan himself. And so that first angel comes out and proclaims that the judgment is coming. And the second angel follows, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her dog trees. Um, Babylon comes in here now. You think, well, what's this got to do with, you know, Babylon fell 600 years before John wrote this. But in the New Testament, Babylon represents a, a world system that stands against God. That's what it represents. So it represents here a world system that stands against God. So when Peter was writing his epistles, it's thought that he was writing from Rome itself. And in the end of 1 Peter, he writes this, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now theologians all tend to agree that Peter was in Rome, and he used the word she who is in Babylon. Babylon is a code word for Rome because it was the dominating power. It stood against the church. And so when we come to Revelation, Babylon represents a world system that stands against God. That's everything outside of the church. Um, Babylon, the people of Babylon came in, in the Old Testament, just in case you're not sure. They ransacked Jerusalem. They took all the people of God into exile. And so it becomes symbolic of, a, a, of this word becomes symbolic for the Christians, um, of those who stood against God. And John comes back to Babylon's fall in chapter 17 and 18, so we'll, we'll look at that more fully then. So I'm not going to concentrate on it now, but suffice to say that the, the angel goes out and saying that, the, that the, this world system is going to fall, everything is going to fall apart from the church. Everything will fall. And so for the first century Christian, who uh, stood in their church and listened to this for the first time, they're thinking, you know, this is Rome. Rome is going to fall, and the church will stand. It's a system that is doomed to failure. And because it's doomed to failure, a third angel comes out and says, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the, the drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. 
and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. When we look at the world, there seems to be so many advantages to fall in with the world system. Um, and that's the point here. There's so many advantages of receiving the mark if you're thinking about it. Um, and that's one of the reasons that, that churches from the beginning of when the church started right up to the 21st century, that's why the church struggles with people who dip in and dip out of church. There's always people who will dip into church, you'll see them for a couple of weeks, then you don't see them for months on end, and they'll dip in again and out again. And that's because there's so many advantages of receiving the mark of the beast. And, and, and you want to have the best, best of both worlds. And people want to have the best of both worlds. And they want that assurance that they're going to heaven, but at the same time they want that, the, the joy of living in the world, if you like. Uh, but that's simply not possible. And John's words here are, are to go out to the church and to remind the church that you, you know, you've, you've got to stand firm. This is what this is all about, Revelation. Standing firm for God. You know, the, he follows this up with this course of patient endurance on the, on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful with Jesus. Because it's, it's so easy to want to be drawn away, to receive that mark, to be part of that system that stands against God. But there's two roads. One leads to glory, one leads to hell. And this is what, what John is writing here. This is a vision that he's seeing. He's seeing this vision of hell, isn't he? Now, the church, especially in recent years, has tried to soften the soften the, the pitch of hell to, to the world. That's because we're, uh, the church is, if you like, um, in a way they're trying to sell a God who is merciful and compassionate and loving to everybody. And they're trying to do that against the traditional picture of hell. And so we've softened the picture of hell in the church in recent years especially. But the point here is clear, isn't it? When you read this, this is pretty stark. Uh, when you read this, this is God's word. The gospel is clear to people. The opportunity to turn to God is clear to people. And if you choose the wrong side, then the consequences are clear. Rejecting God means that you have to accept these consequences. And these consequences are what it says here. He will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. That's there because people used to drink wine. They used to drink wine all the time. They didn't used to drink water like we do and tea and coffee and whatever. They, 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 they drank wine all the time, but they watered it down. And so what, what John is saying is, you know, this is full strength wine that God is going to pour out. His wrath is like the strongest wine. And you're going to feel this. You're going to know this. It can't get much clearer than this, can it? And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There's no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. And that's not just people who are really evil. That's anybody who stands outside of the church. This is what this is saying. This is not just for really, really evil people, really bad people. This is for everybody who goes to hell. And it's important to see that this punishment is not only physical, it's also psychological. It's a psychological part to hell that we often forget about. Um, Jesus made that abundantly clear. I'm going to read you a whole of one of um, Jesus' parables because it really sums up this first point. So this is a parable of Jesus, Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. So he writes this. So you've got to think about what I've just said about Revelation, think about what we're reading about in Revelation, and then think about this parable, the words of this parable. 
Luke 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with swords, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his swords. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, okay, to heaven, right? The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, this is where the rich man is, he's in hell, right? In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, you father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn, warn them, so that they also... Uh, so they will not come also to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So join those together, which is what we're meant to do, okay? Join that together. You can see, can't you, that there's not only a physical torment about being in hell, there's a psychological torment about being in hell. Because when you're in hell, there's that, that understanding of, of, of heaven. You'll know that. Um, so it says, doesn't it, in verse 10 of Revelation 14, he will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. So this is the rich man being tormented in the fire, right? And he knows and he can see and understand that heaven is a, a, a thing. Send Lazarus to me. No, you can't. There's a chasm fixed that cannot be crossed. You are there, and Lazarus is here. That is fixed. So we have to understand that. That's, that really sums up what hell is all about. As people journey through life, they have that opportunity to find a relationship with the one and only true God. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. We can find repentance through Jesus Christ. We either accept that or we reject that. And where we stand on that ultimately depends on who's coming to harvest us or harvest people that we know. So there is a gospel message that is clear to the world. They can see it and they can hear it in the, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. How they respond how people respond, uh, that will depend on what happens and who comes to harvest them. So our second point this morning is the clear result to our response to the gospel. And that's in the second part, the harvest of the earth, from verse 14. There was always going to be a harvest, as I said. The Old Testament prophets pointed to the harvest that was coming. And so we see there, I, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man. This is a, the, the, the prophecy of Jesus coming back that Daniel saw in Daniel 7, verse 13. Uh, and he comes with a, with, with a sickle in hand. So he's come for the harvest. Joel 3, 13 and 14 said this, Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the wine press is full. 
and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. When Joel was talking about the valley of the Lord, and, and about the day of the Lord, sorry, he talked about the harvest that was going to come. The harvest being ripe. A couple of years ago, or so less than a couple of years ago, we, we looked, or a year and a half ago, we looked at the end of Isaiah. And we saw Isaiah 63. We looked at that picture of Jesus coming. And I'm going to read the first four verses of, uh, of uh, Isaiah 63. This is the context of the Messiah. This is the picture of the Messiah for the people of Israel that Isaiah saw. Isaiah 63, 1 to 4. Who is this coming from Edom, from Bosrah, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. That's the, the Messiah speaking. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone from the nations. No one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spat on my garments and stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance, the year for me to redeem had come. Jesus told the Pharisees he would come on, on, on a cloud of heaven. They would see him. When the, the Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples were told, weren't they, you'll see him come back in the same way. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back sickle in hand, ready for the judgment. This is what we see here in Revelation. The harvest will be ripe at that point. And you might think, well, what does that mean? The harvest is ripe. Again, we go back to Jesus. Jesus in chapter Matthew 9, verse 37, said this, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So Jesus sees the earth, and he sees that the harvest is plentiful, and the workers, the church, needs to go out and prepare for the harvest. So we have that job of getting the crop ready for the harvest. Just like my uh, friend Robert spends, you know, most of the year caring for his fields and doing all these different things that he has to do. And then he goes out when it's time. When it's time to get your harvest in, he goes out with his combine harvest and he brings it in. And the church has that same job. We are to do that job. We are preparing for the harvest. Jesus told us to do that. And you'll note from this vision that is Jesus coming. Just from this vision, it's a picture for the church of Jesus coming to, to, to gather in his harvest, his people. The angels, verse 17 onwards, the angels are coming for everybody else. So Jesus is coming to gather his church and the angels are coming to gather everyone else. This, again, fulfills a parable of Jesus. Jesus told the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13. And in Matthew 13, uh, verses 36, Six and following, sorry, the disciples came to him and they said, oh, we don't know. they never understood his parables. And they said to him, explain the parable of the weeds in the field. Explain this parable to us. And so Jesus said this, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin 
and all who do evil, they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Again, we're, we're getting this picture in Revelation 14. We're going back to the words of Jesus. We're seeing that fulfillment of scripture that Jesus talked about. The harvest is ripe. For me, that means that the church is complete. That's it. There's no more need for the pronouncement of the gospel. When the harvest is ripe, when it's time for, for the last Christian to come in to the church, that'll be it. The harvest will be ripe. And Jesus will come. We've already seen the completed church. The first five verses of this chapter are about the completed church. Jesus and his completed church. And what this bit does is fills in the details of that. So you get a picture of Jesus and his church on Mount Zion, and then you get how that, how that happened. He, he's filling in the details at this point with these visions. This is how the church is gathered in. This is how the 144,000, the complete church, are gathered with Jesus. Jesus comes to get them because the church is complete now. Everyone is in. So now Jesus can come, he can gather his people, and the angels can come for everybody else. The, the harvest of grapes that we see. Jesus is coming to harvest the righteous, and I hope that's all of us here and anyone who's listening. And this is the assurance for the church. Remember, this is all about assuring the church that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming for you. He's going to come and take you to himself. This calls for patient endurance on the parts of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Be patient. Jesus is coming. We need to be patient. We need to wait for all of our brothers and sisters to come into the church. And then Jesus will come. But for everyone else, the angels are coming and people will feel the sickle. We've probably all heard the legend of the, the Grim Reaper or seen art about the Grim Reaper. And that comes from the fact that, that the scripture, the Bible, personifies death, makes it into a, like a person. It also goes back to this scripture, because whenever you see any art about the Grim Reaper, he's always holding a sickle. Um, and especially in the, in the Middle Ages, the, the sort of legend grew up that the Grim Reaper was coming for your soul. You know, the Black Death came and you know, people said, oh, the Grim Reaper's coming for you, he's coming for your soul. And it was seen as a bad thing. It was seen as an evil thing. But when we look at it in scripture, we can see it goes back to, to God, who God is. And evil is frightening, but the consequences of evil and the consequences of not turning to Christ are even more frightening. That's the point. Because the sin has to be dealt with, has to be dealt with through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And if it's not, this is what's going to happen. We will be part of the, the cluster of grapes that is gathered and taken to the wine press. That's what this harvest is. It's for everyone who is not saved. It's everyone who's an enemy of God, anyone who's rejected Jesus, everyone who's mocked him. No one's going to escape. No one will be overlooked. No one will be able to run away, run away and hide. It's happening. It's coming. The harvest is coming. Paul, when he's writing to the church in Galatians, said this in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. 
That's really important. That's when people are trying to, trying to dip in and out of church and trying to think, well, I'm trying to keep in with God, but what I really want to do is do something outside of God. And people think that God won't notice. If I turn up for church every now and again, God will notice me, but he won't notice what else I'm getting up to. You reap what you sow. This is what the Bible says. This is again why it comes back to this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. This is about keep on going with Jesus. Keep on walking with him. Don't give in. Uh, you'll note uh, here that um, in this uh, bit that the they were trampled in the wine, in verse 20, they were trampled in the wine press outside the city. Again, that's a picture for us, uh, especially for the church. Jesus was crucified outside the city, wasn't he? Outside the city gates. At the place of judgment, Golgotha, Jesus was crucified. One of my commentaries sums this up. In, uh, I was trying to, uh, during the week, I was looking at reading different things and trying to, Think about this. And one of my commentaries, and I thought, I'm just going to pinch these words because he, he just sums it up really nicely. So this is what he says. It was there that he gave himself to be trodden in the great wine press of the wrath of God, bearing our sins and absorbing their punishment so that we might be clothed with his pure and holy righteousness. Now in the hour of Christ's return, judgment comes to that same place outside God's city. So it's a picture for us. It's a picture for the fact that Jesus died on the cross outside the city for our sin, for my sin, to atone for my sin. But it's a picture of other people standing outside the city and the judgment coming, and Jesus is not there. Jesus is not there now. And they stand alone. They stand unprotected. And they can do nothing to save themselves. And the wrath of God is coming. And that's the reality of Scripture. However hard it is and however hard the church wants to soften that, that's the reality of what Scripture says. There are two roads. There are heaven and hell. And that's it. John talks about um, the blood flowing out of the press and riding as high, rising as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia. And again, Christians try and work out exactly what that, what's that exactly mean. Well, no one knows, really. I've, seen, I've read loads of things. Well, that's the size of Israel. That's the size of this. That's, you know, whatever. For me, it just represents a vast river of blood. It represents a judgment of God that is terrifying, really. My hope as a minister of the gospel is that no one that is here today, or no one is listening to this, will have to fall to this sickle and face this wrath. But to avoid that, we have to have faith in Jesus Christ. This is what this is all about. The harvest is coming. So I'm going to finish, conclude. In the middle of all this, there's a lovely little verse. Verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. One of my commentators at home devotes 10 pages alone to that verse. Right? I'm not going to devote the whole of 25 minutes which it takes to read those 10 pages. But there's a simple context here, isn't there? Verse 11. This is the people who 
uh, in the harvest of grapes who don't know Jesus. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. There's the context for you. Isaiah 48, 22 says, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And what that means is that that continues into eternity. There's no peace. There's constant torment for those outside of Christ. But for the Christian... For those who have a blessed union with Jesus, that blessed union goes on for eternity and gives us eternal peace. Yes, as the Spirit, they will rest from their labor. The Greek word labor, uh, that we translate labor there, is a Greek word called kapon, right, which literally means wearisome striving. Okay, so what, what John is saying here is that the Christian has wearisome striving in life. And that's because life can be difficult for the Christian all the way through the ages. We have to deal with an ungenerate people that we deal with. We have to deal with a a world that is against the church. We have to deal with the false prophet and the antichrist and the dragon. We have to deal with sin in our lives. And not only that, we also have to deal with the whole fact of that we are striving for God at the same time. Because they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. The context there is that our toil for the church that we are supposed to do, that, that evangelism, which is often quite hard, will come to an end at that point. And we will rest from that. And that's assurance to the church and to the Christian that there'll be a point when all this comes to an end and you will rest from your labor. That's the truth of having faith in Jesus. It can be hard now, but eternal life is wonderful. And again, John is trying to encourage the church and trying to encourage me and you all these years later, the same thing. It's easy to look at what the world offers and we want to be part of that. In the last two weeks, I've talked to two other pastors in the Northeast, had uh, conversations with them, and they've both brought up the same subject independently of each other. And that is the fact that, that we see people who perhaps dip in and out of church, as I said, who, who, who perhaps are more impressed by what the world offers rather than what Jesus offers. And that can be hard when you're in Christian ministry, when you see people who are more impressed, who would rather do anything else apart from come to church every now and again just to keep in with God. And that can be quite hard. And I think other, as I said, two, these two other pastors both brought the same thing up when we were talking. Because it's easy to look at the world and think, oh, that I want, that, that's what I want. You know, the church holds me back. The church is holding me back. The gospel is holding me back. Asaph wrote a whole psalm about it, didn't he, in Psalm 73, looking at everyone else and thinking, well, I want what they want, what they have. But these words that have remind Christians in every generation that whilst it's costly to follow Jesus now, it's more costly at the end for those who don't. If Jesus has chosen you, he has separated you from the world, he has given you faith, and one day he will come and separate you again. And that's the assurance that we will have, that Jesus is coming back, and that we will go to be with him and not have to face the wine press outside the city. The harvest is coming. Take encouragement from the fact that the harvest is, co- is coming, and assurance from the fact that if you belong to Jesus. But also remember that this is a reality for the world in which we live. Out there now, 
you know, I'm standing here, the door's open, you know, hundreds of cars are coming past. They have no concept of ever wanting to go to church. They wouldn't think about stopping their car and coming in. You know, on a Sunday afternoon when we're out there, you know, uh, uh, those who have been there on Sunday afternoon, you know, we, we, we're there, we're standing there, we're singing, and, and literally every Sunday afternoon, 10, 15 cars come past, beep their horns, people shouting out of the window, not shouting out to encourage us. Oh, yes, go on, praise the Lord. That's great, guys. Really wonderful. Glad you're out there praising the Lord. They're not doing that at all, are they? You know, David wants to put a sign out there saying, toot if you love Jesus, apparently. Um, but, um, but that's the fact, isn't there? There are people who are driving past and they've got no concept of what's coming. No concept at all that the harvest is coming. And that you're either being harvested by Jesus and taken to be with him, to stand on Mount Zion, or you're being harvested to face the wrath of God. And we all have to remember that as we focus our hearts on life. But be assured, I hope, in your hearts that Jesus is coming for you to take him to be, in your, to be with him forever. Let's pray as we close. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. These words are hard for us sometimes to read about, especially when we read about the difference, Lord, between being part of your kingdom and not. Anything we read about how can be difficult for us, Lord, but it's a reality, Lord. This is your kingdom. This is your creation, Lord. You have created heaven. You have created hell. Lord, And we have to understand that. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us that assurance and encouragement in our own lives to keep on walking with you, to, to be uh, to endure patiently. But Lord, you'll also help us to think about what that means for the lost. Lord, and help us to think about the, the, the reality that means for the people that we know and love in our families who don't know you as Lord and Savior. Pray, Lord, you give us the boldness, Lord, to speak to people, Lord, and, and the, just even the, the encouragement to pray for people as well. Lord, I thank you that I'm part of your kingdom. I thank you for each one of my brothers and sisters in Christ here who are part of the kingdom or who are listening who are part of your kingdom as well. And I pray, Lord, that you just keep us safe with you. Bless us, Lord. But help us, Lord, to endure. Help us to continue to strive to serve you as well. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.